You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. But the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Glad you're here this morning. Um, and in case you uh, don't know, uh, we, thanks, Josh, we have, um, the pandemic has, has hit our church uh, for probably the first time, really, seriously, in, in the two years that uh, COVID has been around, about. So, um, so uh, we have uh, a text message went out to all of our members and our people um, uh, last uh, last night, and um, and told people that um, there had just been people who needed to st- stay home and people who were sick. You don't have to worry; everything's clean. And the people who are here are those who have gone uh, gotten over it. But um, it's been very interesting today to have so many people gone and uh, so many people needing to stay at home. Um, and I'm thankful though that we get to just a little bit of time with us together. Who um, who uh, who have been well? My my family and I uh, we we are about you know 15 days or so out out of that and um, and so it's nice to be back in public with people again and um, I pray that you um, are safe as well um, and are staying healthy but uh, but it's it's been interesting to say the least and so um, our first service uh, we had just the faithful few, and uh, it seems that it's the same um, in this service. So let's spend, we're gonna spend this next hour just together in the word of God like we normally do, okay? And uh, if you can, would you please turn in your Bible with me to Luke chapter 14, Luke 14, verses 15 through 24. Luke 14, verses 15 to 24. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some in the basket in underneath the row of the chairs in front of you, uh, but you should have one because that's what um, we're gonna do here is just walk through, walk through the text, okay? Um, and, uh, and we're gonna be in verses 15 through 24. We're gonna divide this time into two weeks, which I thought we were gonna spend just one week in these, in these verses. So next week, Pastor Chad will preach a, a counseling message, and then I'll be back uh, preaching for, the, for the, the foreseeable future week after week, um, and uh, we'll pick back up the second week of this passage, and then we'll just move on, move on from there. So this is kind of just the first part. I wrote the whole message, but, we, uh, but it's about 25 pages. Normally, I'm right around 18 or so, so we're going to cut it off probably after point one. Um, but after uh, we, we got a little while to, before we get there. Um, but before we just make clear this this main point in this passage, before we make clear the what's uh, God has providentially given us for today in this text, um, before we expose and explain and exalt over and exhort with this text that God's given us today, right? That's what we do with the Word. We expose it by reading it. Okay, then we explain what it says. We exalt over it, meaning we rejoice over the truth that lies inside of it. And we exhort with it, meaning we, we, it reproves us, it rebukes us. It encourages us sometimes, right? It teaches us. And so before we move into that, um, as the main point in, in Luke's gospel, as we move verse by verse, we're gonna recite this month's corporate memory verse and we're gonna spend just a little bit of time on that, okay? So we're gonna get into Luke in a few minutes, um, but we often recite the memory verse that our church is, is, uh, is learning and memorizing together. And uh, this month, it comes from Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. Now, let me encourage you, okay? If, uh, if all you do is, is stick with your Bible reading plan that we passed out, and I don't know where you're at on that, but I imagine you're a little bit behind because everybody's been behind, right, when I say... Uh, reading plan. Everyone puts their eyes down um, real quick. Uh, keep going on that, okay? And, um, and by January, I'm hoping that you can read through the whole Bible in just in a year's time. I got a plan for the next two years after that. 
but I can't reveal that to you until January. So keep going until January, okay? But if all you do is read through that plan and then all you do is memorize these corporate memory verses, you'll get a lot of Bible inside you on a regular basis. It would be really helpful for you. So I encourage you, take these memory verses, you know, do whatever you need to do with them, write them on a little note card, put them by the side of your bed. If you're a girl, write on the mirror in the, in the bathroom. I think girls like to do that for some reason, I'm not sure. Um, and uh, sometimes I said lipstick in the last service. They said, no, don't do that with lipstick. Then they said, uh, do a dry erase marker. And that sounds a lot more logical to do that. So do that or put it maybe in a little place in your car that when you're driving, you can just read it and uh, recite it. But if you just med- meditate on these verses throughout the month, it'd be really helpful for you. Okay, it'd be really helpful for you to memorize, meditate on these verses, allow them to sink in, think about the truths that lie within these verses, and then also read your Bible, come to church on a regular basis, hear the preaching of God's word. You'll have a lot of Bible inside you, and uh, it'll change you, it'll transform you. So let's recite this out loud together, and I wanted to spend maybe 10 minutes or so just talking about these verses, and then we'll get into Luke, okay? So can you read them out loud with me? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And these verses now, they've gripped me for the past month or so um, because my family memorized and sought to understand these verses uh, for this past month. Okay, and so we use the family discipleship memorization method that I taught on Sunday evening a few, a few weeks ago. If you were here on Sunday evening, I taught just a way for you to be able to lead your children in memorizing and learning scripture a, a couple of weeks ago in our Sunday evening service. And that's what we did. Our family memorized this passage on vacation. And then when we got home, we continued to review this passage for the past couple of weeks. And so um, since being home, and so this passage has really gripped my heart. Uh, and each week as we review these verses, I want to point out a few, a few aspects. Um, and today, um, I want to point out a couple of observations from this text. Today, simply what I want us to notice is that these verses, uh, these verses are an answer to a question. Okay, so these, these verses are, are an answer to a question. Jesus is asked a question by the Pharisees. And these verses are an answer to that question. What's the question? Well, you can read it in Matthew 22, verses 34 through 36, the verses that precede the passage that we're memorizing. Okay, here it is on the screen. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question and tested to test him. He says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? So our memory verses are, the, are, are the, is the answer to the question about the greatest commandment in the law coming from the Pharisees. Now, what I want us to notice here, and what's really actually encouraging, is the way in which Jesus responds. Jesus is committed, listen, to saying what is true with sincerity, right? With his whole heart, regardless of the attitudes and the motives of those who are opposing him. The people who are asking the question, the lawyers and the Pharisees, are asking this question to test Jesus. They're trying to back Jesus into a corner, right? They, they want to ask this question in such a way that Jesus won't be able to answer, right? They're, 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 they're wanting to accuse Jesus of blasphemy if he, fa- if, if he picks one commandment over the other. If he picks one commandment over the other, he's, he's blasphemy. Or they want, if he fails to answer, then he's unqualified to be their Messiah, the Messiah, the long-awaited Christ, right? So they're trying to back Jesus in the corner. They don't want to know the truth so that they can honor God and follow God and, and obey the greatest commandment. They want to disprove God's Christ so that they don't have to submit to his authority, right? So, and you see, we see people like that. We see people who want to ask questions, theological questions, uh, questions about what the scripture says, not so that he can follow God, but so that they can disprove him and therefore not submit to his authority, right? And so this is what, this is the situation. But Jesus, when he answers, he answers truthfully and he answers with sincerity. These are the answers to his question. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is a reoccurring theme. Jesus answering the tr- with the truth, with sincerity, this is a reoccurring theme because he's just done this in the previous section with the Sadducees. 
So Jesus is having a really strong day. He's, he's, he's rebuking the, the Sadducees and then he's rebuking the Pharisees, okay? The Sadducees, he just rebuked just a few verses before this, as we saw, right? When he finished rebuking the, the Sadducees, now he's going to the Pharisees, right? They tried to disprove Jesus as well, the Sadducees. How did they try to disprove Jesus? Well, they tried to disprove Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, by asking another question. So they ask a question, and then the Pharisees ask a question. And the question that they ask is filled with biased presuppositions. They're trying to trap Jesus. They're biased because they don't make any sense, and, and they're, they're based on false presuppositions. The Pharisees assumed that Jesus would have no answer, and so did the Sadducees. So they wanted to discredit Jesus and his teaching. Here's what the Sadducees did. They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Right? They don't believe that, that you'll raise to life after death. And so what they asked is they said, well, Jesus, here's a question. If a man has a wife and, and, his, and, his wife, uh, uh, and the man dies, and then the, the wife, as is written in the law, marries the brother, and then the brother dies, and then if that woman marries the other brother, and then that brother dies, and so on and so forth, whose wife is she in heaven? Right? And they thought that you know, by saying this, this is going to be impossible for Jesus to answer. They thought they would prove their point. But when Jesus answers, he answers again with truth and sincerity. Um, they assume that there's no resurrection of the dead, which is what they base their question on. Here's what Jesus says, Matthew 22. He says, Jesus answered him, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So the Sadducees, listen, they attempt to discredit Jesus, to test Jesus, to oppose Jesus. They ask a question, not because they wanna know the answer, but because they didn't want to submit to Jesus's authority. But with the Sadducees, Jesus does the same thing. He says, here's what Jesus says. He says, your question doesn't even make any sense and it's proof that you don't even understand the scriptures. Right? It doesn't even make any sense because there's no marrying in heaven. We'll be married to God. Right? So, so your question doesn't even make any sense. So what we're seeing here, and it's probably not what you notice at first when you read these verses, is, is that what Jesus is doing in both of these cases is, though they're trying to test Jesus, Jesus answers with the truth and he answers with sincerity. He states that loving God and loving others is the two greatest commandments, and he states that, uh, that, that they don't even know the, understand the truth of the scriptures. And so he's being tested and he's being opposed by those with wrong motives. Now here's what I think we can apply this. I pray that we as followers of Christ, that we answer with the truth and we answer with sincerity, regardless of the motives of those who are asking the question. Regardless, even when the motives of those who are listening are impure and full of opposition, that we wouldn't shy away from the truth and that our answers would be sincere because we believe the truth that we're stating, regardless of the opposition that we face. And so it could be someone's coming into church and I don't know where all you are at in your faith, but someone could be coming in here saying, I don't really wanna listen or obey God. I just wanna kind of come in and, and see if I can disprove anything. But the only thing that I can do is, is proclaim the truth with sincerity and hopefully God takes that seed and plants it in their heart and they... And they change. And that's what you can do with those people around you. Now, I want us to notice one more thing, just briefly. When you come to the end of this passage, when you come to the end of these verses, remember now, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees who thought they were righteous before God by keeping the what? The law, right? They thought that they were righteous before God by keeping the law. Now, when Jesus answers this question, he answers with the two greatest commandments, but it's also an indictment on the Pharisees. You say, well, how is this an indictment? Well, Here's what we know. We know this because at the end of the section, look what it says. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, here's what, would, here's what was true. The Pharisees would summarize the whole Old Testament into two sections, the law and the what? And the prophets. The, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, right? That was known as the law. And the rest of it can be categorized into what? The prophets. And so Jesus is saying this, the law and the prophets. On these two commandments rest all the law and the prophets. They say, Jesus, what's the greatest, what's the greatest commandment? And when Jesus answers this, Jesus is essentially saying here that keeping the rest of God's law is dependent upon keeping these two commandments. All the law and the prophets hangs on, depends on, is founded on, sits on, must be, is, is fully dependent on these two commandments being underneath the foundation, the motive, the reason, the heart, behind all of your other obedience. 
That's what he's saying here. Loving God with all your heart, loving your neighbor as yourself, those are the foundational aspects that, that, must, that all other obedience to the law must rest upon. Obedience is dependent upon, built upon, love for God and love for others. And so what Jesus is saying here is, here's the two greatest commandments, love God and love others as yourself. All other obedience to the law is dependent upon those two being, being the motive. And so all, all obedience, he says, right, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And what he's saying to these Pharisees is that your keeping of the law doesn't mean anything unless they're motivated by these two things. And if they're without these two things, your obedience doesn't mean anything, right? Which, of course, can only be given by a new heart. You can't love God perfectly and you can't love your neighbor as yourself. You can't do that because you got what is called a sin nature. So you need a regenerate heart in Christ. And then you gotta love God and love others through this new heart that Christ gives you. And then you fulfill the, the requirements of God's word by following them. But all of it is not out of a keeping of an obedience to show other people to be clean on the outside and dirty on the inside. You follow God's word and his law because you love God and you wanna know God. And then you follow his word and his law because you wanna love others like he's called you to. And if you're obedient, if you come to church, if you follow, if you, uh, if you try to labor for God, if you try to keep the law, if you try to attend church, if you try to do ministry, and it's not motivated by a regenerate heart that has a love for God and love for others in Christ, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything at all. And uh, that's what he's saying here. If you labor for God and it's not the overflow of a love for God or love for others, it's meaningless. It's not true obedience. It's just outward duty. And uh, this reminds me of John chapter 15, if you guys know that, where we must abide in him and he in us, if we're gonna bear any fruit at all. And apart from that, we can't do anything. We can't have any fruit of obedience. We can't accomplish anything of eternal value. So what we've seen in, these verse, in this verse, and, and, and I point out a couple of things, because I really only have one more week to talk about it at the end of the month. Pastor Chad's taking my week next week. We, we've looked at two things, the true and sincere response of Christ in light of uh, opposition, and uh, we've looked at how all of our obedience must come from a love for God and a love for others, or else it means nothing, right? So now, now we've talked about our memory verse. Let's move into the text that the Lord's given us for today as we make our way verse by verse through the book of Luke. We're just gonna you know, do what we can with this today, and I'll cut it off where we cut it off, and we'll pick it up next time, okay? So... So uh, our, our, our time is where it is, and so it would be good for you just to spend the rest of this time just trying to understand what this word says. We, we gotta get into some nitty-gritty details. There's a lot going on here, um, and we'll just do what we can with it until, until our time is up, okay? So let's read it, verses 15 through 24 in Luke chapter 14. Luke 14, verses 15 through 24. It says this, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a banquet, a great banquet, and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Okay, so now what we're seeing here in this passage 
is Jesus exposing the sin that is preventing the Pharisees from experiencing salvation. Okay, let me tell you, listen close now. Jesus is exposing the sin that is preventing the Pharisees from experiencing salvation. The sin that is preventing them from believing. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's exposing the sin that is preventing the Pharisees from being saved. In other words, Jesus is making clear that what is, what, what's hindering the Pharisees from doing some things, right? Agreeing with God about their sin, that's necessary for salvation. What's preventing them from believing that Jesus is God's Christ, that's necessary for salvation. What's preventing them from repenting of their sin, that's necessary for salvation. And what's preventing them from coming under the authority of Christ or obeying the gospel or following Christ, that's necessary for salvation. Jesus is exposing the sin that's hindering the Pharisees from being saved. That's the particular doctrine that's being made known here. That's why I've entitled the message, Hindrances to True Salvation. Now this is, I'm saying part two, but it's kind of part four, and I'll show you that in a minute. Part two, because this is only two weeks since I've, um, I've personally been showing you some of this progression. So let me just tell you this. This is the sin that they are blind to. Jesus is exposing, listen now, the sin that the Pharisees are blind to that are preventing them from being saved. And he's calling them to repent. Jesus has been indicting the Pharisees, but he's also giving a merciful call to them that they would repent. Now, there's no indication that they ever do, okay? Moving forward in Luke's gospel from here, we actually see evidence that this kind of preaching from Jesus only makes the Pharisees more indignant, and then it leads to his execution. So it's pretty logical where we're at in this book. We're only two months away in the timeline here, it's gonna take us longer, right? You all know that. But we're only two months away from the, the, from the crucifixion. And what's happening now is they're on their way to Jerusalem and Jesus is teaching the, the, Pharise- uh, the, the disciples, he's training the disciples, he's teaching them how they're gonna go about their ministry while he leaves. And at the same time, he's indicting the Pharisees, exposing the sin of Israel, right? That's what he's doing during this time. Now, it's pretty logical that, that as he does this, what it's gonna lead to is his disciples being trained and the Pharisees deciding to kill him, right? That's, what, that's what's gonna happen as we lead up to Jerusalem, right? The Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, they're gonna be so indignant because of the, of the truth that he's proclaiming and the disciples are gonna be trained and then they're gonna kill him and then, then the disciples will take the message, right? And we move right into the book of Acts. So, so this is what's happening here. Now, this main point, Jesus exposing the sin that's preventing the Pharisees from experiencing salvation, it becomes very clear when you see the pattern of, of, uh, of the past section or so. In chapter 13, verse 1, all the way to where we are now. And I want to show you this, okay? Um, and so just, it might look a little confusing. Don't worry, I'm just going to explain it to you for a few minutes, okay? This is really showing the, the pattern that's been here. This is Christ's call and Israel's rejection, this is what's been happening. Now, I want you to follow along with me, okay? Don't get, don't get ahead, just follow along. In chapter 13, verses one through five, it's kind of where this section starts, okay? What happens in chapter 13, verses one through five? Well, Jesus says, repent or perish. He's speaking, listen, he's speaking to, to the leading Jews. He's speaking to Israel. He's saying, listen now, listen. He's saying this, you, you need to repent. You need to to recognize your sin, you need to repent or you will perish. Israel, right, the the religious leaders, the Pharisees especially, they thought that they were righteous before God by keeping the law. And what he's trying to accentuate here is you. No, it's you who are guilty. You need to to repent or you you will perish. So this all has to do with Israel and and the religious leaders, right? You are guilty. You are a sinner. You, You need Christ. You need saving, you need salvation, you need forgiveness. Before God, you're not righteous. You're not gonna make it to heaven on your own by your own works. You need to repent or you will perish. This is what he's, this is what he's saying there. But then you see the very next section in verses six through nine in chapter 13, where Jesus is lamenting and pronouncing judgment. It's the parable of the barren fig tree. 
And you see this interaction between the Father and, through, and, and between Christ. That's a pretty interesting interaction. You see the interaction between Jesus and the Father. And what, the, what Jesus is saying is, hey, they're failing to produce fruit. Let's cut the tree down. And the Father says, no, let's give it a little bit more time. Let's, let's kind of work the soil a little bit. Let's, let's proclaim the message a little bit more. And if they fail to repent after a little bit more time, then we'll cut the tree down. This is a lamentation of, them refu- of Israel refusing to believe the gospel. And this is a pronouncement of judgment. Right? And so you see this. And then the next, very next section, you see evidences of this sin hindering their salvation. You see in verses 10 through 17 in chapter 13, you see right after the parable of the barren fig tree, you see the, Jesus enter into the synagogue and the ruler of the synagogue becomes indignant when Jesus heals this woman. Now you say, why, is, how do you, what is that, why do you say the sin that's hindering their salvation? Well, this is just evidence that they're failing to repent, right? They're failing to repent, They've denied the Christ, and you want proof? Look, listen now, you want proof? Watch this. Jesus is in the synagogue, He's, he heals a woman, and instead of the religious leader saying, praise God, the Messiah's here, the Christ is here, he becomes indignant. And now you gotta understand a couple of things. This is a representative of all of Israel. This is the ruler of the synagogue. So he represents what's really happening in all of Israel. Now, you got to understand, also think about this. Remember when John the Baptist was in prison in Matthew chapter 11? He was in prison, and, uh, and he sends word out to Christ, and he's, to, to Jesus. He asks the, the disciples to go and say to Jesus, can you ask Jesus a question? Are you the one, or should we expect somebody else? Now, why does he ask that? Well, he asks that because he's in prison. That's not supposed to happen if you're the Messiah, right? But what is Jesus' response? Jesus' response is this, tell John the Baptist that the lame walk, the blind receive their sight, right? What was that meaning? That was, those were the messianic expectations. When the Messiah would come, when the Christ would come, here's what would happen. The, the lame would walk, the blind would receive their sight. So listen, they, that was his, his answer, I'm the Christ. Now when Jesus comes into the synagogue with the ruler of the synagogue and heals this woman, instead of the ruler of the synagogue saying, the Messiah's here. The Christ is here. Look at this. Women are being healed. The, the, the lame are walking. The blind are receiving the sight. Instead, he is indignant. He's indignant. And so this is a representative of, of, of Israel. So, so now we see this pattern repeated, right? This pattern is repeated now. We see, and it gives us insight into where we're going to be in just a minute in our text. So we see the very next section, chapter 13, verses 22 through 30. It's Jesus is saying essentially the same thing. Enter through the narrow door or perish. You. And he's saying this. This is to Israel. Why? How do we know this? Well, because he's saying many are going to wish to enter through the door, but they're not going to be able. What does that mean? They're going to want heaven, right? They're going to want heaven, but they're unwilling to come through this Christ. They're unwilling to come through the narrow door. There's one way. There's one man. There's one Christ. There's one Messiah. They want to get in, but the door's too narrow. They want a lot of different ways in. They want the door to be wider. And it's one man. This is God's Christ. Enter through the narrow door, Israel, or perish. Now, what we see in the very next section is parallel to the, to the barren fig tree section, where Jesus now laments over Jerusalem. He says this, repent or perish, this is what I've been telling you, and here's the truth. Ready? Here's what he says. He says, oh, Jerusalem, if you would have just responded, I would have gathered you like children, like a, like a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you are not willing. This is a lamentation of Israel's rejection, and this is a pronouncement of judgment. Now, what we see in this very next section, which is the section we're in, is once again, proof. Here's a sin that's hindering. Now, what's, what's wonderful about this section is that Jesus lists about four things now. We saw the, the indignation of the ruler of the synagogue, right? But now here, Jesus is, he's, he's showing, he's exposing about four, four things in a row, right, right after another, exposing the sin of the Pharisees that's causing them to reject salvation. What are these things? Let me just show them to you. Okay. List them all off. Now, this is going to get us into our, into our 
text, you're going to really understand this. How does he show this sin? Well, there's four things. There's hypocrisy. There's a lack of humility. There's an undervaluing of, head, uh, of heavenly reward. And there's this heedless unbelief. Now, let me tell you something. This is what is preventing the Pharisees from coming to salvation. And this is what Jesus is exposing. Listen now. Jesus is telling them this. And if they would recognize this, and if they would repent, they would be saved. What do we mean by, by the, each of these? Well, there's first of all the hypocrisy. Now you gotta understand, Jesus is not just talking about worldly issues here. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about salvation. The first section in chapter 14, verses one through six, here's what Jesus is doing. He's showing their hypocrisy. He goes to the Pharisee's house. The Pharisees invite a man with dropsy, and they invite Jesus. Not because they have compassion on the man with dropsy, because they put two and two together and they say, listen, if I could bring this man with dropsy and I can bring Jesus and Jesus heals on the, uh, on the Sabbath, then we, can, then we can test him, indict him, capture, uh, uh, and, uh, and capture him in, in sin, right? So what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus does the exact thing that they expect him to do. He heals the man on the Sabbath, right? They say, it says that they were watching Jesus. And uh, in the next section, it says that Jesus then turns and starts wa watching them, Right? I'm going to turn these tables a little bit. Well, what happens is he heals the woman or, or heals the man with dropsy on the Sabbath. And what he does then is basically say that, first of all, there's no law preventing healing, uh, me healing on the Sabbath. Second of all, you all are hypocrites. Because if you had an ox that was stuck in a ditch on the Sabbath, you would pull your ox out. And what he's showing here is that what's preventing you from being saved is that you're hypocrites. You, you want to be cleansed on the outside, but you, you are unwilling to be cleansed on the inside. You, you want to say the truth of the law, but you yourselves don't even hold to it. What's preventing you from being saved is recognizing that you are guilty on the inside. You need cleansing for your sin rather than just being clean on the outside. You're okay with doing the things on the outside, but you're unwilling to recognize what needs to be done on the inside. Your, the spiritual hypocrisy. That's what's preventing them from being saved. Well, what's the second thing? Well, it's a lack of humility. You see this story of these Pharisees trying to clamor to the front of, of the table, sit to the right and to the left of the host on their own, by their own righteousness. They want to be recognized. They think they're good enough. They want to sit on the right and left of the host. And then Jesus tells a story of how the host is going to say, you, you, you're going to go to the end of the table, right? And what's this a picture of? This is a picture of salvation. He's saying, if you now would not try to sit to the right and to the left of the host of heaven by yourself, with your own righteousness, by your own manipulation, by your own self-promotion, and you would humble yourself now here on earth and believe in the Christ, recognize your sin, admit your sin, follow Christ. It takes a lot of humility to follow Christ for a lifetime. You're not gonna look good in the eyes of everybody, right? It's not gonna look like you're winning in the world. You're gonna look like you're losing, but you know you're winning because life is gonna end and you're gonna be on the right side of things. If you will humble yourself now here on earth, believe in the Christ and follow in the Christ, do you know what's gonna happen? When the end of time comes, when you die or when Jesus returns, he's gonna say, come up here and sit here with me. If you humble yourself now, you're gonna be exalted. But if you exalt yourself, Say, I'm gonna be right with God in heaven because I'm a good person, I've got it all together. And you try to sit to the right and the left of the host of heaven on your own, you know what's gonna happen when the end of time comes, he's gonna say, uh, depart from me. If you'll humble yourself now, you'll be exalted. That's what they were unwilling to do. That's why they weren't being saved. We see this hypocrisy, we see this lack of humility, and then we see this undervaluing of heavenly reward, meaning this, you want earthly reward. You want earthly reward, not heavenly reward, right? What's happening? Well, he gives this story of, of inviting poor and, and, and uh, blind people to the, to the banquet rather than inviting the rich. And, and he's not just talking about a banquet. Here's what he's saying, or to a dinner. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, are you willing to do what's right even if it means you lose here on earth, right? That's the question, if you're not able to be repaid here on earth, will you do what's right? And that's, this, is the, this is it. Will, will you believe that I'm the Christ, follow me, submit to me, even if it doesn't mean any reward for you here on earth? And they're unwilling. 
It's preventing them from salvation. And can I tell you, these, these three things, they're the truth. There's nothing new under the sun. This is what's still preventing people from coming to saving faith. Hypocrisy. You want to be clean on the outside, go to church, look like you're a Christian, God all together, unwilling to be clean on the inside. You're in trouble. Secondly, a lack of humility. You, you, you refuse to be seen as less than in this world and think long term and then be exalted in heaven and have eternity with God. Instead, you'd rather, you'd rather fight for, for a position in this world. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul, right? And the third thing here is this undervaluing of, of heavenly reward. Listen, do what's right, which is believe in Christ and follow Christ. Do what's right, right? Even if it means loss of earthly reward. That doesn't mean anything. Your life is a vapor. It's like a grass. It's like the wind that blows. You, you, you were, you're choosing to be rewarded in this life and you're not thinking rightly, right? And then he moves lastly into this heedless unbelief. And what do I mean by heedless? I mean this. It's a lack of care or attention to what's actually true. Heedless means you can't be corrected. You're stuck on yourself, your priority is yourself, you're gonna serve yourself, and you refuse to be corrected. And it's all rooted in unbelief. Let me tell you what's happening here. Look at this, okay, just listen. They don't believe he's the Christ, their priority is their self, and they refuse to be corrected. They're blind to the fact that he's the Christ, therefore, their life is about themselves, and they refuse to be corrected. So they don't even see it. They're blind. They're blind to the truth. Therefore, they refuse to, to, to forfeit themselves. And therefore, they can't be corrected. They, it's just, it's, it's like you're talking to, um, to somebody and it's going in one ear and out the other. Because they really don't see that he's the Christ and they need to give themselves up and follow the Christ. That's what's happening here. So we see these hindrances to salvation. Now, I want to show you one thing. After we get done here, we're going to move from these hindrances to salvation. And verse 25 then moves to the highway to true salvation. You see what's preventing salvation. And then in verse 25, you see the pathway to salvation. So he's going to move on from what is preventing. Now, if you really want to follow me, here's what it's going to take. That's the next section. Okay, so right now we're in this fourth hindrance. Okay, we're in this fourth hindrance. And it's this blindness. This is what's true about Everybody who doesn't come to faith in Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 says this. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, look at this. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If a person is blind to the fact that this is the true Christ, they will be unwilling to repent. They will be unwilling to take heed to his truth. And they will be unwilling to give up themselves and follow him. Here's what Jesus is going to say it's going to take. In the very next section, Luke 14 says this. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. If you don't believe he's the Christ, you're not doing that. Luke 14 says, therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. If you don't believe he's the Christ, you're not doing that. And can I tell you, you can say you believe, but it'll be evidenced by your repentance and your faith. So... Listen, we're in this fourth hindrance now. We've gotten there. Now let's move into the division of this matter, okay? What I mean by that is the headings or divisions or the explanations to make clear this doctrine that Jesus is exposing their sin, okay? The sin that's preventing the Pharisees from salvation. I'm gonna give you three headings. Today we're gonna get through only one of them, okay? So I've divided this passage up into three headings. Here's what they are. Number one, the preparation and the call. Number two, the priorities and the rejection. And number three, the penalty and the judgment. So here's what it is, ready? The, he's proving that though he has called them to salvation, they have rejected coming to him and therefore they face judgment. He's exposing the sin that's preventing them from coming to faith. Okay, so you could put salvation at the end of these numbers. The preparation and call to salvation, preparing the Jews and the calling them, Israel. 
the priorities of them and the rejection of this salvation, right? Pre preparation and call to salvation, the priorities and the rejection of salvation, and thirdly, the penalty of judgment of not having salvation, right? This is what Jesus is exposing. So let's make these points clear by taking them one at a time, okay? It's our point that we're gonna sit in today, verses 15 through 17. Let's read it, okay? 15 through 17. All the hard work is done. It's pretty clear. But I think it's gonna be surprising to you, so pay attention, please. Verses 15 through 17. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many, and at the time for the banquet, his, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. This is the preparation and the call. Now remember, Jesus is at the Pharisee's house. He's still there after all this time, okay? He's exposed three of the hindrances. Now he's exposing the four, right? They were watching Jesus. Now Jesus is watching them, and he's telling them of what's hindering them from salvation. Now, for these last three hindrances, Jesus has been using parables. We've been talking about this, right? These parables are stories are, uh, to, to illustrate spiritual realities, He's telling stories to illustrate spiritual realities. So it's clear that Jesus is talking about more here. He's not, he's not, listen, he's not talking just about dinners. He's not talking about weddings. He's not just talking about feasts. He's not saying, here's how you sit at the front of the table. Sit in the back. Then when the host comes, you're going to switch you. You're going to bring up to the front. Here's how you get to the front of the table at the dinner, right? He's not talking about that. He's not talking about rules about, hey, invite your poor friends and don't invite your rich friends. He's talking about more than that. And we can see that that's clear and everybody knows that. Jesus is speaking about salvation. He's speaking about entrance into the kingdom of God. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about life after death. How do we know? Look at verse 14. Look at what Jesus says. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the what? of the just, that's salvation. And even the listeners knew that this is what he was speaking about. Because look at verse 15. The one reclining at the table, this is one of our verses, he says this, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. They know that they're talking about salvation. So Jesus is speaking in parables to make clear the sin that's hindering the Pharisees from experiencing salvation. So as Jesus moves into this fourth hindrance, it's prompted by Verse 15, one of those who reclined at the table. So now I want you to notice something. Since the beginning of these hindrances, Jesus has spoken to the entire group, verses one through six. Jesus has spoken to the one who invited him in verses seven through 11, or those who were invited, I'm sorry, verses seven through 11. Jesus has spoken to those that the man who invited him, verses 12 through 14, and now Jesus is speaking to one of the individuals in the crowd who had been invited. Watch, he's whole group, let me show you all that you're hypocrites. I'm gonna to speak to the whole group in case you might say, well, I'm not really sure if he's talking about me, right? Let me talk to the one who, all the people who are invited, okay? This group of people who are invited, okay, he might be talking about me. Let me, let me talk to the one who's done all the inviting, right? The man who invites, the host. And now if, if you might say out of that whole group, I'm not, still not sure he's talking about me. Let me talk to one individual within the group that has been invited, right? He, he's, he's, he's smothering them with their guilt. He is not letting anybody off the hook. There's no stone unturned here. Everybody in this room is guilty of what he's saying here, right? So this is, the, all the, undoubtedly, this is to the guests as a whole, but he, he, he is speaking to, everybody, to one of these people here. This is directly to this man, yet I think they all still remain deaf and blind. So he's speaking to this individual, but no doubt this applies to everyone. Now it says in verse 15, this is to one of those who reclined at the table with him, right? There is the individual reclining at the table. Remember Pastor Josh spoke about how you, were, you would recline at the table? Okay, well, that's what happens. But it says this, when one of these who reclined at the table with him heard these things, Okay, so this is all prompted by after this man heard these things. What things? You gotta ask that question, what things? Well, all the things that Jesus has just said. 
all the sin of the Pharisees that Jesus has just been exposing, those are the things. And instead of this Pharisee, notice this, like the prophet Isaiah saying, woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Instead of the Pharisee saying, Jesus, you have just exposed three foundational things that are keeping us from salvation. I am so guilty. Woe is me. I'm guilty and everyone at this table is guilty. We're all guilty. Instead of saying that or even saying, instead of saying what the tax collector said in Luke chapter 18 where he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. After all the sin has been exposed, instead of saying that, he says like a typical Pharisee, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And what he's essentially saying here is, Jesus, I've heard all your indictments, your three hindrances, and I don't believe I'm guilty of any of them. In fact, I'm kind of euphorically exulting over the fact that I think I'm the one of the righteous. I'm gonna eat bread in the kingdom of God. It's like he's bragging and reassuring himself at the same time. Oh, how happy it will be for all of us who are righteous in the kingdom of God, right? It's like he's pompously saying, this is going to be awesome, huh? It's like someone sitting in church. Listen, listen now. It's like someone sitting in church and hearing God's holy requirements, hearing how they have fallen short, hearing that it will take repentance and faith, and instead of falling on their face and saying, I'm a guilty sinner, I need Christ, I need to live for him, and I need to trust in him for forgiveness, and I need to live every breath for him moving forward, the person says, they kind of lie to themselves, they're blind and self-deceived and they leave and they say, I'm so glad I've got this figured out. I'm so, they leave and they say, wow, that, that really stinks, but I'm glad I got this figured out. I, I, I'm set apart for some reason. I don't, this doesn't apply to me for some reason. I'm excused from this for some reason or I've got everything figured out, unlike everybody else, right? And so this man, verse 15, he says this to Jesus. After all that Jesus has just exposed, Follow with me. We're almost done now, okay? Here's what he says in verse 15. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, he said to Jesus, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, here's how you know he's wrong. Here's how you know that this is not something good that he just said. Because in verse 16, it starts with the word but. The rest of the Pharisees are still not seeing their sin. Verse 16, this man, he's not seeing his sin. Instead of Jesus agreeing with this man, it says, but he said to him. You know what that means? But signifying Jesus is countering what the man just said. Right? He is pointing out the error of what the man just said. He's refuting what the man just said. He isn't agreeing with the man and what he just said. He's contradicting the man's statement. He's showing him how he's wrong, right? Here's how we begin to, uh, to understand once again, this is what's happening in this, this passage. I'm proving this to you. This man is saying, heard what you said, Jesus, about all the sin of the Pharisees. It's gonna be awesome that we're gonna be in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, Right? This is a contradicting statement. Jesus is showing him where he's wrong. And then he's going to proceed for the rest of the passage to show a parable as to expose where these Pharisees have gone wrong. This is the answer. This is the main point of the whole thing. Jesus is exposing the sin that's hindering them from coming to salvation. You see it now? That's what's happening. So Jesus, the man's saying, we're going to be in the kingdom of God, but he said to him, and this is what he says. Verses 16 through 17 now, here's where we start, the parable that Jesus is exposing the sin that's hindering them from coming to salvation. He's exposing it by telling this parable. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. 
And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Now, what Jesus is speaking here, these are our last verses for today. What Jesus is speaking of here is, is uh, salvation, and he's exposing what's preventing them, right? Here's how wedding banquets worked in these days. There was an initial invitation to a wedding, okay? But you would tell the people that they were invited, but you wouldn't tell them when they needed to come because you didn't know, right? So it's, it's, a, it's, it's an invitation and it's, a, uh, it's letting people know. It's, a, it's, it's an alert. It's, uh, you're telling them, right? You're, you're saying, hey, um, here, here's a notice. You're gonna be invited to a wedding. Don't worry, you're invited, right? But it's, it's not a save the date or time. There is no date or time, okay? So there's an initial invitation, and then these people would be ready. They would stay ready. They would be excited. It could be a week, could be a month, could be a year, right? Not usually that long, usually about a, a, a month or two, but you would stay ready, and, and you would wonder. You would say, I wonder if it's this day. I wonder if it's going to be this day. I wonder if it's going to be that day. I wonder if it's going to be... I wonder when the, you know, the, the wedding's going to be. And then a servant would come and tell you and say, hey, listen now, the wedding's about to happen, so you'd stay ready, right? You'd kind of stay for that entire month. You'd kind of stay looking sharp, right? Make sure you get your hair cut every, every few days. Women, you're in the salon every few days. You got a wedding coming up. You got to stay sharp, right? Or men, right? I don't know. You can go to the salon. But you stay ready. You're excited about this. The wedding banquet, the announcement. This wasn't a save the date. Why? Now, let me tell you some things now that's going to... It's going to bring this home, okay? Why? Why wouldn't you stay ready? Well, I want to tell you why, and it's going to show you how this is talking about salvation, and then I'm going to tell you what Jesus, which aspect Jesus is specifically referring to, okay? And you're going to understand it, and we're going to be done. Here's why. The bride and the bridegroom would have to make themselves ready. So you don't know when the wedding's going to be. All you know is there's going to be a wedding. The bride and the bridegroom have to make preparations. The bridegroom would be preparing a place for the bride to come and dwell with him. And the bride would be making herself clean to be embraced by the bridegroom. So this doesn't take a lot to, be, to, uh, to see the parallels of salvation, which is what he's speaking of. Let me show you how this points to Jesus is speaking of salvation. I'm going to show you five things. The last one are going to be, is going to be the, the one he's particularly referring to. First, not on the screen, but just you can write it down or you can listen. Here's how we know he's talking about salvation. The uniting of the church, listen now, okay? It's really important. The uniting of the church, that is the saints, or the bride of Christ, with the bridegroom, at the end of time, that's called the wedding banquet of the Lamb. This is the banquet. See the parallel to salvation here? Revelation 19 says this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper, there it is, or the marriage banquet of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. He's talking about salvation. When you go to be with Christ, when all of history is over and you're with God and all the saints are with God, that is the marriage banquet or the wedding banquet of the lamb. Second now, here's another parallel. We saw in Revelation 19, but we also see in Ephesians 4 and 5. The bride or the church, believers in Christ, listen now, really important, are to spend this life, listen, 
making themselves ready and clean and pure and mature to be embraced by the bridegroom, Christ. Like a bride would be. So listen, let me tell you, the purpose of your life as a believer in Christ, after you've come to saving faith, is to spend the rest of your life becoming holy. That's the purpose of the Christian's life. That's why you say, is the church for the believers or for the non-believers? Easy, it's for a believer. We welcome non-believers in here, but you're gonna come in and you're gonna see you're not part of this unless God transforms you through the gospel and then begins to make you holy. The purpose of the Christian's life for the rest of their life after coming to know Christ is to be made holy, to be made ready to be embraced by the bridegroom. You are being transformed by the word for the rest of your life. We reach unbelievers. We, we do the work of the ministry, we, et cetera. We invest in others. But the purpose of your life is to become holy, transformed, renewed, Through the renewing of your mind by the word for the rest of your life, you're a bride being made pure and holy for the bridegroom. That's the purpose of a Christian's life after they've been born again, right? We see this, this is the purpose of the local church. Why does God give pastors to the local church? Ephesians 4, to make believers mature, ready to see Christ. Look at this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by honey, uh, human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head. That is Christ. And here's the point of what Christ is doing in your life, believer, until the day you die. Look at this. Ephesians 5. Watch this now. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. Watch this. Christ gave himself up for you. Why? That he might, for the rest of your life, sanctify you. Make you holy. Make you pure. Having cleansed you, the bride, how? By the washing of water with the word. Wow. Believer, here's your insight. You come to know faith, you come to faith in Christ for the rest of your life. By the word of God, you are made holy to meet your bridegroom, Christ. It's the purpose of your life. Why? It says it clearly. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the point. Third, almost done. Christ has ascended into heaven. Now, here's another parallel to this salvation of speaking of the banquet to prepare a place for the bride. Remember I said this is how it works, right? This is how it works. And so you guys know these verses, John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Here's the parallels to the wedding banquet, right? It's the wedding banquet of the Lamb when we meet Christ, the bride making herself ready, And here's the bridegroom preparing a place. This is why you couldn't tell him the time or the place for the banquet, right? Here's what Christ is doing. He's gone in heaven to prepare a place as he's ascended for his bride. Let me tell you how this this works. This is like, Jesus is saying here, like if a bridegroom would say to the bride, listen, you're mine. I'm gonna marry you fully. I'm gonna go prepare a place. You make yourself ready. Don't worry, you're mine. I'm gonna come and get you, right? You're you're under my protection. You're not alone anymore. You're with me. I'm gonna go prepare a place. I'm gonna come back and get you. And then you're gonna be with me where I am, right? This is the picture. Fourth, almost done. We have the bride then needing to stay ready. So the bride gets ready and then she stays ready for when the bridegroom returns. This is easy to see, but the bride shouldn't find herself unclean or prostituting herself or unprepared. For when the bridegroom returns, and that's you. You you don't want to find yourself unready for when the bridegroom returns. 
right? Now, fifth, and, and that's kind of like the parable of the 10 virgins, right? Matthew 25. Fifth, and this is what Jesus is referring to, and we're, we're done. It deals with the guests. The guests who need to stay ready. The guests, like I told you, would be anticipating the bridegroom and the bride being ready and the wedding banquet happening. This is what we're referring to. Look at the verses. Look at it. He said to him, a man once gave a banquet and invited many. We're talking about now the aspect of all of this. We're, I've, I've just showed you. We're talking about salvation here. We're talking about the particular aspect of the guests. Many had been invited, and when the time came for the banquet, he sent the servant to those who had been invited, who had been invited. Previously invited, not told when, come, for everything is now ready, right? So they would be anticipating when the bridegroom came to make themselves ready, they would be called to this great banquet. They would anticipate, they would observe, they would watch, kind of like what we do during Advent reliving Israel's anticipation. So what does this mean? Well, I hope it's clear to you, but if it's not, here's the, the guilt of the Pharisees. In the Old Testament, the prophets, they spoke of a time when God would send his Christ. That was the initial invitation to many. He said, I'm gonna send my, my Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, Israel, be ready, right? The Messiah, the initial invitation, no date or time, just the initial invitation. And when the fullness of time would come, Christ would come to the earth. And he would even send John the Baptist to say, get ready, it's almost time. He's almost here, right? Listen now, we're almost done. Luke 6, 1, 16 through 17 says this. This is what John the Baptist came to do, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He's, he's here. And Israel said they were waiting. Remember when we go, if we go back a couple of months to Luke chapter 12, two chapters ago, but months ago, and we spoke of them interpreting the time, the parable of interpreting the time. You know what he's saying? You Pharisees, you can interpret wind patterns and you can see this and that, but you can't interpret the, the time, meaning the Messiah is here. You said you were waiting and you were watching. You weren't waiting or watching. He's here, right? And so now they could, what he's saying here is verse 17, the time came for the banquet. He had invited many. He spoke to Israel. Here is their sin. The time came, at the time for the banquet came, he sent his servant. Who's his servant? The apostles, John the Baptist, the apostles, and the Christ himself. He's here. He's here. The Christ is here. The Messiah is here, right? To those who had been invited. Come now. Everything is ready. We're almost done. Don't worry. Everything is ready. This is, what the, this is the issue. Come now, everything is ready. I'm gonna leave you there. They were supposed to see the Christ is here. They were to repent. This is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what the Bible calls the time of his visitation. This is what they're waiting for. Entrance into the kingdom, the anointed one. The kingdom of God is at hand. We see here the preparation and the call of Israel. Now when we see point number two, we're gonna see their guilt that's preventing them from receiving this, this call. And so my prayer is that as God prepares your heart with the gospel message, you wouldn't respond how we're about to see these Pharisees respond. They were told, they were prepared, they were called, they had been given the invitation, right? And then next week or in two weeks, we're gonna see what prevents them from responding to this call. So let's pray. Father, we come before you and we could probably talk for another couple, couple hours about this passage. There's so much here. If we're to understand it rightly, teach it rightly and, and understand all the nuances and all the truths that are within each word and each sentence and each phrase and each paragraph here. I mean, this is just what you intended. Jesus' words just pack so much meaning in very few words. There's so much behind this so much theology behind this, so much truth behind this, so much rebuke behind this. 
So much conviction behind this. In just a few sentences, we have gotten a bigger picture of what is really happening here. Help us to always treat the word of God this way. But also, God, help us to take heed. Help us to take heed here. You are preparing hearts even now. You are calling hearts even now. Help us not to respond like the Pharisees do in the next few verses. This is what's hindering the world from coming to saving faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.